But let's do open our Bibles together now to the book of Romans chapter 11. Book of Romans chapter 11 as we uh, make our way back into this glorious epistle after a couple of weeks off. We are right at the end of chapter 11, so picking up in verse 33. Hear now the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. For this good and pure and perfect gift that you have given to us, your people. Through your word, by your spirit, we hear the voice of our God. We come to know our God. That by your Spirit's working through your word, we've been transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Our blind eyes have been given sight and our dead hearts have been made to live. Pray this morning, Lord, by your spirit, through your word, that you would accomplish all of your good purposes in us and through us. Pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to the end this morning of the first half of the book of Romans. This will be our 71st sermon in the book of Romans, for those who are keeping track. And we're about to move from what's called the doctrinal section of Romans into what they call the practical section of the book of Romans. You've heard me complain about that enough. I won't do it again this morning. But we're moving into this second half of the letter that that deals with Christian living. And so Paul is taking us, as we transition from chapter 11 into chapter 12, from belief to behavior, from theology into practice. It's, It's never enough that we simply believe the truth. We must live in light of the truth. In other words, we must not be hearers only of the word, but but doers. And the first 11 chapters have instructed us in many of the great doctrines of the faith we have seen in these chapters over these past 71 sermons, the doctrine of original sin and grace and depravity and judgment and our sin nature. We've seen salvation as a free gift and genuine saving faith. We've seen repentance. We've seen the eternal nature of heaven and hell. We've seen justification and wrath and forgiveness and predestination and election. And we've seen Christ's propitiation in our place. We've seen sanctification. We've seen even the need for evangelism. For, for 11 chapters, Paul has explained the gospel in great, great detail, explaining to us that no one is righteous before God. In those early chapters of this book, as he, as he guides us to the edge of this pit and tells us to look over the edge into that abyss of sin and filth and moral depravity, that we are all guilty and condemned before God because of our sin. And he showed us God's plan of salvation, that that this plan of salvation has always, from, from the foundation of the world, been 
an act of God's grace towards man. It's never been a matter of earning. That faith is the only way of receiving this salvation. He's, he's argued that just as sin and death came into the world through one man, Adam, so the free gift of life has come into the world through one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's rejoiced that, that everyone who is found in Christ will never be separated from his love, that, that every person who is chosen by him for eternal life will one day be glorified. And as, as Paul has, has reflected on these glorious mountaintop truths and doctrines, as he's reflected on the whole scope of salvation, all that God has accomplished, all that God will accomplish because of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul, now, as we come to the end of chapter 11, the end of this doctrinal section erupts in a hymn of praise, magnifying the mercy of God. This, friends, is what doctrine does. We live in a world that, that, that is actively trying to tell us in the church, if we want to grow a church, if we want to have a good, strong, big church, don't get too doctrinal. Certainly don't get into the kind of deep water that Paul's been getting into in the last few chapters. People fight over that. People get upset and uneasy. But the truth is what true doctrine does is it produces worship in the heart of the Christian. This is Paul's response after all these things. These things that Christians fight about, these things that Christians leave their church over, Paul reflects on them and it causes him to explode in worship towards God. Right theology leads us to this because it, it leads us to an awareness of our sin. It causes us to behold the greatness of our Savior. Right doctrine leads us to our knees. And then it causes us to rise to our feet and serve God with our lives. And so as we transition into chapter 12, we see Paul get into that. Chapter 12 opens with the words, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Right doctrine leads to true worship, and true worship leads to action. That, that, that's what we see modeled for us in this very letter. In, in chapter 12, Paul's going to take us from learning about God to living for God. As he has meditated upon, expounded upon the great things of God, as he has scaled this Mount Everest of theological truth, he pauses at the peak now to take it all in here in these verses that we're considering this morning. And he's overwhelmed. As he considers all of these glorious truths about who God is and what God has done and is doing, Paul is overwhelmed with the grace of God, with the power of God, with the justice and the sovereignty and the majesty and the love and the mercy of God. And so Paul ends this first half of Romans with a burst of joyful exaltation and awe. This, again, is what right doctrine does. When right doctrine is taught and understood, it produces this in us, humble, joyful praise of God in awe of and wonder of his power and of his grace. And so we have this morning one of the great texts in all of Scripture. This text that reveals to us God who is totally transcendent, totally, totally far above anything else. Nothing could be compared to him. A God who is, who is sovereign over all things. A God who is, 
who is utterly glorious. And let's just look at this passage together. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Consider Paul, Paul describing God as completely transcendent, as, as incomprehensible to us. And, and think back on who Paul is, this Paul that we've now 71 sermons heard how smart this guy is. Paul who, who, who is brilliant. The Apostle Peter says of Paul, and I find great encouragement for this as I've studied the book of Romans, especially the last few chapters, some of the things Paul says are hard to understand. Because Paul is a brilliant Man, Peter might have been thinking about some of the things Paul said here in Romans when he made that statement. And Paul here in the chapters that, that precede our passage today has been expounding on this revelation of God in the gospel. He's been explaining the immensities of the faith, the infinities of the faith. This perhaps, this 11 chapters that, that, that we have had that just that we have come through is, is probably the richest theology that any human man has ever expressed in the history of existence. Such high and lofty theology, again, that churches often don't talk about a lot of it. They don't even preach about it. They treat it as, as if it's, it's unfruitful to think so deeply about such things. It's unfruitful to be so doctrinal and to be so theological. But what does Paul say? What does Paul say after explaining all of these things, after, after, after looking at the majesty of God and what he has done? Paul, this brilliant man, says, I've seen such immensities and such infinities. There are depths here that my mind can't fathom. I can't even comprehend. It's, it's as, as if it's a man looking over the edge of a boat in the middle of the ocean, at the depths of the ocean. It just goes down and down and down. And he knows he'll never see the bottom. He knows he'll never understand all that's happening there beneath him. We need to remember this of God. There's always more going on than we can see. In any situation where... Where, where we might know one or two things that God's doing in our lives, there's a million more that we don't know about. We'll never fully see. No one can plumb the depths of God's plans. God's ways are higher than our ways. His wisdom far surpasses our own. His, his knowledge is vastly beyond our understanding. And again, we can understand some of what God's doing. But there's always millions more things that he is doing that we just can't see, that we just don't know, that we just don't understand. Our information is so limited. And so Paul has been amazed by God. And if we would see God the way Paul sees God, we would be amazed. There'd be no taking him lightly. There'd be no approaching him casually. We would stand in awe of God. We stand in awe of his immensity and his transcendence, of his holiness, of his glory, of his might, of his mercy, of his justice, all that, that is in God. This is what the word glory means. When we speak of the word glory, the glory of God, that word means weightiness. 
There's a weight. There's a, there's a heaviness. No one who takes God lightly understands him. All of those who come so casually and say, oh, we can worship God any way, any way we want. He's just like a junior high school boy who's just happy that a girl's showing him any kind of attention and they don't care what kind. Oh, no, we don't understand God if we approach him in that way. We can do whatever we want. We can bring whatever we want before him. Those who have beheld his glory take him seriously. They do not take him lightly. There's a weight. There's a reverence. There is an awe. There's no flippancy. Paul says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? There are aspects of God, there are realities in the mind of God, friends, that you and I will never understand. We can never fathom them. We, we, are, we are tempted to look at our own lives and think, if I can't piece all the pieces of the puzzle together, then I have the right to say that God has been unfaithful to me or that he's not involved in this situation whatsoever. And Paul reminds us, you can never fully fathom this infinite God. It's transcendent God. Now, in Scripture, God has given us actually everything that we need. We don't need any more information than we've got right here from the Lord in the pages of infallible Scripture. Everything we need for salvation, everything we need for faithful living, we should be eternally thankful for that. But there is more to God. There is more to His attributes, to His being, to His character, to His ways, than we could possibly understand. Paul speaks here of the depths and riches of the knowledge of God. God's omniscience, his, his, his all-knowingness. God knows everything. These are words, especially for those of us that have been around the church for a long time, that we hear a lot, and we think about that, right, God's omniscient. He knows all things. We don't often just pause to think about what that means. How, how incredible of a concept that is. God knows the intricacies of his own being. This infinite God who we will never be able to fully comprehend, he knows full well. We who are, are frail and finite and fragile, our days are like the dust we can't even fully understand ourselves. I find myself often feeling some kind of way, maybe depressed, maybe frustrated, maybe angry. It's destroying my whole day. It's affecting the way I speak to my wife or anyone I come in contact with. And at some point I realize, I don't even know why I feel this way. Nothing happened. I don't even understand myself. God knows fully the intricacies of, of his infinite nature and being, and he knows all things outside of himself, which is a much smaller matter. But he does. He knows the entirety of creation. He knows the answer to every question. There's no fact, no detail, no mystery that isn't known to God. He knows that the Kansas Jayhawks would have won the 2020 National Championship if it hadn't been canceled due to COVID. Even though it was never played, he knows. 
I ruined my own sermons. He knows the future perfectly. He didn't learn it. He ordained it. He knows the end from the beginning. Nothing has ever, will ever catch him by surprise. All things are ordained by him. He is never reacting to anything. His knowledge is infinite. A.W. Tozer says, God cannot learn. He never at any time or in any manner received into his mind knowledge that he did not possess and had not possessed from eternity. Because God knows all things perfectly, he knows no thing better than any other thing, but all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He is never surprised, nor is he amazed. How deep is the mind of God? Paul also speaks, though, of the depth and the riches of the wisdom of God. There's a difference between wisdom and knowledge. We're going to be, if you come back at 530, that's the attribute of God that we're studying tonight, the wisdom of God. It's one thing to know something, but to be wise, you actually need to know how to put that knowledge to use. You, need, you be, have to be able to, to apply that knowledge to achieve a good end. But that's wisdom, and God has perfect wisdom. He, he knows how to achieve all of his purposes. He doesn't just know what he wants to do. He knows how to do it, how to get it done. He, he knows how to, to work all things to bring about his good in every single situation. Imagine how complicated that is, how, how huge that is. It, it's not just, Scripture doesn't just tell us that God is is ordaining and, and directing and bringing about his good purposes in the major events of history. Here's the, here's the 15 big things I'm focused on. No, it's in all things. It's in every single thing. How complicated must it have been to arrange every detail of human history in order to ensure that you would be sitting exactly where you're sitting this morning? In this building, on this day, that's what God did. Imagine that. Imagine the immensity it takes to do such a thing. And he's not just doing that for you. He's doing that for everyone. Everyone in the entire world, every person, every event ever in all of history, God holds all of it together because of his immense wisdom. And it's not just his wisdom. It's not just his knowledge. It's his judgments. God's judgments, his, his decrees, what it is that God has determined is going to happen. Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be... Uh -uh. So that the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The eternal purpose of Almighty God. His, his plan to bring about salvation for all of his people. There are depths to that plan that we cannot fathom. The, these depths, Paul says, are unsearchable. Again, this, this is an area when it comes to God's bringing about salvation for his, his elect people, to use Paul's language from this letter. This is an area that we as fragile humans think we're the authorities on. We think so much 
that we fully understand all of God's workings in, in the mind of God and the eternal purposes of God, that we will question who he saves and who he doesn't as if we are the moral right and, and God is somehow the moral wrong. No, Paul says this is unsearchable. His judgments, his decrees, what he ordains, it is, it is unsearchable for us. There are depths to God's knowledge. There are depths to God's wisdom. There are depths to God's judgments. And Paul says there are depths to God's ways. Why do we question God? It's because his ways are not our ways. That's why. Because he knows best and we don't. We're wrong all the time. His providence, his, the, the unfolding of God's will in the intricate details of history and the way that this plan actually involves our lives, there are depths to that that we cannot fathom. It's, it's beyond us. And so here's what that means for us on a practical level, Christian, when we don't understand what God's doing. When we look at the world around us and we look at the events of our lives, the things that rock us to the core and we do not have any answers, though we seek the Lord in tears, we can know that his ways are so much higher than ours. His ways, in fact, are so much higher than ours that we doubt sometimes. Isn't that true? I can't be the only one. Sometimes we doubt the goodness of his plan. We would do well in those times to remember what Paul's saying right here in this passage. That there are intricacies to the ways of God that are inscrutable to us. We cannot comprehend we cannot understand. We cannot reason our way there. there. There are immensities to God that are far beyond our understanding, and we tend to forget that. We tend to forget just how limited and how frail and how weak and how faulty our human understanding really is. The truth is we only know anything at all because God has chosen to reveal it to us. That's the only reason we know anything true. Otherwise, we're helpless He's sovereign. We are weak, needy servants. We only know anything if he has chosen to reveal it to us. But, but the problem is we forget. The problem is we're arrogant. The problem is we are full of ourselves and we presume we can figure it all out. We presume we ought to be able to with our puny human logic. It's really the height of arrogance to think such things. The story is told of Muhammad Ali when he was the the reigning heavyweight world champion boxer. Ali's at the height of his fame, the height of his status, and he's on an airplane about to take off, and the, the flight attendant comes around to him and asks him to fasten his seatbelt. And Ali looks up at her and says, Superman don't need a seatbelt. The flight attendant, who was apparently pretty quick thinking, said, Superman don't need an airplane either. <laughs> so he put his seatbelt on truth is we're, we're, we're not God we forget just how human we are we forget just how frail we are how limited we are and even in eternity we will not fully comprehend the infinity of his mind the infinity of his wisdom the infinity of his justice a billion years from now Christian you'll still be astounded at the 
the power and the mercy and the glory and the holiness of God. Notice too then in, in, in verse 35, Paul then quotes the end of the book of Job. Job 41 verse 11, verse 35 says, who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Paul again, thinking on the sovereignty of God, this sovereign ruler of all that he has made. Why, why would Paul throw in a quote from the book of Job here? Well, Job, remember, was asking God for an explanation. All of these things had happened to him. He couldn't reconcile them. He couldn't make sense. How's this the good plan of God? How's this the way things are going? He's been suffering, and he wants to know why. He wants an answer from God, and God, for his part, had been silent. No answers, no response. God hadn't said anything. And so Job comes before God demanding an explanation as though God owes anyone an explanation for anything. But, friends, isn't that what we do? One of the things Job learns through his ordeal is this. God owes us nothing. God owes us nothing at all. God doesn't owe anyone anything. Job, in fact, as we read this story, he, he never gets the answer. He never gets the answer to why this happened and what this, this, this eternal plan of God is and the intricacies of all, how it works. What God does is reveal to him who he is to remind Job of the arrogance of challenging him and questioning him so that Job will simply trust God. God doesn't owe us anything. Here, here in Romans, in the chapters that, that immediately precede this passage, Paul has been explaining that. He's been explaining the God-centeredness of the gospel itself, that, that our salvation is purely the result of God's grace. It's a matter of his choosing, Paul has told us, not a matter of our efforts and our work and our willing and our wanting. In chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, Paul has expounded the intricacies of the doctrine of election and predestination. Those are words that Christians shudder over and get mad over and fight over and leave churches over. They're Paul's words, so we should love them. When we hear election and predestination, we should go, oh, I'm happy about whatever that is because Paul's the one who used those words and taught us that. Paul even went so far in chapter 9, verse 13, as to say, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And then he makes it clear in verse 11, this was before they were born and had done anything good or bad. Now, those are God's words. So, so Paul has been talking about the absolute sovereignty of God. It doesn't get more sovereign than that. And he says there's a purpose of God in this. There's a purpose of God in his, in his electing, saving grace. And there is a purpose of God, a good one, which leads to reprobation as well. And he knows what our response is. He knows that our, our temptation when we, when we read that or when we hear that is to say, that's not fair. If that's how God's works. That's just simply not fair. I had a college professor who, who at a supposedly conservative college, the one I teach at, if you're curious, uh, who said, if this is who God is, then I won't worship him. 
I took the liberty of telling him that's not a thing a Christian would say, which didn't go over well. It's what we do. Paul addresses that argument, though, that it's not fair argument in Romans 9. And he addresses it exactly the same way God addresses Job's questions and complaints, basically by saying, who do you think you are to question God? That's why the Apostle Paul is referencing the book of Job here, because fairness has nothing to do with it. Fairness doesn't even factor into the equation when it comes to salvation. No one is righteous. Not one. No one is deserving. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not one of us has given to God that he should repay us. So Paul here is is emphasizing the sheer sovereignty of God in the giving of saving grace. And this is the best news ever. We've seen this in the book of Romans. We saw it when we studied the gospel of John. The truth is, if he didn't choose us, we would never, ever come. We would never have come. We, so, so we can't divorce these hard truths that Paul teaches, the ones that make us a little bit nervous. We can't divorce them from the goodness of God. Because God only, always does what is just and good and perfect. He's always righteous. He's always faithful. John Calvin, in in the first sermon, when he preached through the book of Job, said, it is a good thing, a great thing, a wonderful thing to be subject to the majesty of God. Do you really trust yourself more than you trust God to call the shots for your life? I do not. And so we see in this passage a vision of a God who is big. We see a God who is incomprehensible, a God who is inscrutable. There are depths to the knowledge and the wisdom of God, and we see a God who is absolutely sovereign, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, who saves by his grace and is no man's debtor. And then Paul reveals to us the glorious nature of God, the glory of God in verse 36, for from him And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul's summation, as he meditates on the the greatness of God, that these 11 chapters, as Paul has considered from from all different angles, the, the nature of who God is and what he has done, Paul's summation is that great battle cry of the Reformation, Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Friends, this is what happens when we meditate on God's sovereignty. When we stop fighting, when we just meditate on what it means for all these things Scripture says to be true, we are in awe. We are in awe of God. We respond to God with humility and with worship. It's why the best thing you can do for yourself, the most practical thing, it's why I hate that they call the second half of this book the practical section. The most practical thing you can do, Christian, is to study the attributes of God. Study who God is and what God has done. Dive deep into these truths we've seen in these 11 chapters. 
The Puritans had this expression, think greatly about the greatness of God. It's one of the most practical things you can do. To think high and lofty thoughts of a God who is high and exalted above all things. And, and what is it that Paul's been drawn to as he's, as he's pulled together all the threads that God has been revealing in creation and, and providence and in the, in the unfolding of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? What is it that Paul is drawn to? Well, it is simply this. All things exist for the glory of God. That's the great overarching reality of all of existence. All things exist for the glory of God because from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. That This is the greatest truth that exists. This is the ultimate reality that is, that is upholding all other realities. From Him, through Him, to Him are all things. Charles Spurgeon said this, Paul explained as a general principle that all things come from God. They are from Him as their source. They are through Him as their means, and they are to Him as their end. They are from Him in the plan, through Him in the working, and to Him in the glory they produce. This is the truest thing in all the universe. It's the truest thing in every event in our lives. From Him. Through Him. To Him. And we can trust Him in that. No, we can't understand the intricacies of His plan. How could this be from Him? How could this be through Him? How could this be to His glory? Oh, I can't understand it, but we can trust Him. And, and this truth is a soft pillow you can lay your head down on at night. No matter what comes into our lives. Th this, friends, must not just be the heart of our existence as, as Christians. It must be the heart of our existence as a church. This truth must be what Maple Grove is all about. From Him, through Him, to Him are all things. In, in the, the, the great end and purpose of God in creation and redemption, in, in creating us in the first place, in saving us, in rescuing us, in, in bringing us into union with himself through Christ. The whole purpose in all of that, as the Westminster Catechism puts it, is that we would, as our chief end, glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's God's big plan in all this. Our eternal joy because of his glory. Spurgeon again says, Thus it should be our desire and goal to bring glory to him in all things. If you really want to glorify God, take care that you don't do it with lip service, which dies away in the wind, but with true honor in daily life. Praise him by your patience and pain, by your perseverance in duty, by your generosity in his cause, by your boldness in testimony, by your consecration to his work, Praise Him not only in worship services on Sunday morning, but praise Him also every day by doing something for God in all sorts of ways according to the manner in which He has been pleased to bless you. This is where right doctrine leads. Right doctrine leads to awe and wonder and humility and thankfulness and genuine worship 
of the God who is worthy of all worship and all praise and all glory and all honor from this time forth, from eternity past to eternity future. And it leads us to live our lives for the glory of God. In those moments where we don't, in those moments where we sin, in those moments where we are selfish, idolatrous self-worshippers, Our problem is a worship problem. We're worshiping ourselves instead of worshiping God. It's, it's, it's reflecting on who God is that brings us to that place of true worship that causes us to live for Him with our lives. John Calvin, that great reformer, his, his motto was, I offer myself promptly and sincerely. This is what true worship of God causes the Christian to do. To look to God and say, whatever it is, Whatever the events of my life, whatever those things I can't understand, whatever, whatever these things swirling around me in the world where I can't understand how they're from Him or through Him or going to give glory to Him, in all of that, with all of my questions, I offer myself promptly and sincerely. I belong to you. I trust you. I offer my heart promptly. Sincerely, that should be our prayer for our own lives. That's what these 11 chapters of doctrine produces in the heart of the genuine Christian. It's what meditating on the glory of God does for Christians. It causes us to bow our knee before Him. To acknowledge that all glory belongs to Him, that all things exist for His glory. It is right that we do this because it is what is true, because God is worthy of all glory and all worship and all submission. But friends, the wonderful news is, believer chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, God wrapped you up in His glory. Such that to glorify God in all things is to, to produce the most joy in your life. And to produce a new joy for all of eternity. What an amazing gospel. What an amazing God. What an amazing salvation. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word. Lord, we, we consider your greatness with our brother Paul. And we're astounded at who you are. Lord, we are astounded at our smallness and your infinite nature. Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, for, for my friends, Lord, that you would give us an increasing vision of your glory by your Spirit, that we would be in awe of you, in reverence and, and worship, that we would bow our knee before you, that we would, we would serve you with the strength that you give us and the gifts that you give us, that we would live for your glory in this dark world pray, Lord, that you would use us to bear fruit for your kingdom. And I do pray, Lord, for any that, that do not know you. Lord, they consider who you are and it causes them to tremble. Perhaps their heart is so hardened by sin that they're, they're unmoved entirely. I pray, Lord, in your kindness, by your spirit, that you would now place your finger in 
on their heart. Break up the stone that is their heart. Give them a heart of flesh. Give to them the gift of repentance. Cause them to see their desperation and their need for you. Lift their eyes to Christ. They might run to you and find mercy. We ask you, Lord, to do these things knowing that it is your joy to save your people. So we rest in you. We rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen.